Our God, we come to you knowing that you are among us, that you are with us, that you want to speak to us through your word today. So I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be with all of us, to open our hard hearts, to open our closed minds, to be able to receive your truth, to understand it as truth and be changed by it. We pray, Lord, that like Saul, you would take away the scales from our eyes, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ today. We pray that you would exalt the Savior, that you would humble the sinner, and that you would promote holiness among us. For we pray this in our King's name. Amen. Last week, if you were here, you remember that I, I told you I had begun writing an introduction to the book of Hebrews. I got to about 3,000 words, and it was communion, and I said, I've got to wrap this up. So I ended up making this a two-parter. So we are in the same passage today as we were going to be last week. This is part two of Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there um, so you can be like the Bereans and check what I'm saying against Scripture. This is God's Word for God's people, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the word of the Lord. In our last message, as I said already, we had a brief introduction to the wonderful book of Hebrews. At least it was brief, according to some of the other books I've read about it. Uh, 18 pages might not be brief to some of you. When um, we've covered some of the great themes that Hebrews contains and teaches. And we learned that the overarching message of Hebrews, as well as Scripture itself, is the supremacy of God's Son. And we saw how this theme has profound implications for our lives and for the world. And we consider it again, the question, if Jesus is who and what the Bible says he is, your life cannot remain the same, as you must make a response to this truth. And it was pointed out once, uh, I think by C.S. Lewis, but I can't remember which book it was in, that uh, no one in Jesus' day understood him to be merely uh, a man who was a good teacher and nothing more, that there wasn't this, uh, this kind of indifference to Christ that we are familiar with in our own time. He wasn't somebody that you could ignore or just give a nod to and then move on. He didn't give people those kind of reactions. What we see in scripture is that when people encountered Jesus, it was anything but indifference or mild acknowledgement. We see loathing and hatred against our Lord. There was fear and there was terror. There was worship, there was adoration, but th there was never this modern saccharine sentimentalism or lukewarm indifference, or subtle, you know, Jesus was a nice guy, but nothing more kind of idea that's just so prevalent in the West today. Jesus confronted people. He changed people. And nobody can genuinely encounter the Son of God and remain the same. Their hearts are hardened, or their hearts are softened. They react in anger, or they react in wonder, but they're never the same. People are changed by the Lord Jesus. The truth of the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ requires a response. 
And this is true for our passage today. The truths that we will learn from this text are truths which call for a response for us. For some, people flatly deny these truths, and they'll, they'll even go so far as to change God's word to avoid what it says. And for others, for the Jewish Christians who received this letter, for the Christians who followed them in history, and for us, 2,000 years later, living in this empire of sin and spiritual adultery, these truths will give us hope and praise for the Lord Jesus Christ, who possesses all authority in heaven and earth. Again, we're in part two of the message from Hebrews 1, 1 through 3a. And in today's passage, we're, uh, we're going to be beginning the exposition of the book. Last week's message, while having some scripture references in it, was fairly topical because it was a sort of thematic introduction to the book. But today we'll begin where the author of Hebrews begins, which is the supremacy of God's Son. And these first three verses of the book of Hebrews lay out some weighty and profound truths about the Lord Jesus, truths which affect our entire understanding of Jesus and when read, should completely bury the idea of Jesus was merely a good teacher that we hear so often today. They might say he's a good teacher, yes, but just a man who was misunderstood by his confused followers. That's an error that's not in line with reality. We'll start with verses 1 through 2a, 1 through the first half of 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So right out of the gate, the author of the Hebrews begins to explain the superiority and the ascendancy of Jesus Christ. This letter doesn't open with a greeting and preliminary remarks like you'd see in some of Paul's letters or in the other letters of the Bible. The author of Hebrews goes directly to the point. And the first line speaks of Christ's identity as the Son of God and his place as the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate communication of God, the ultimate presence of God. In the Old Testament, God spoke to the nation of Israel in, in many ways and at many times. We see God speaking directly to Adam or to Noah or to Abram. And we also see God speak to Israel from fire and smoke and thunder on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, where it says, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Following this appearance of God in fire on the mountain, the people of Israel couldn't stand hearing God's voice and being in God's presence. God's manifestation, this limited manifestation of God Almighty caused them to be, to be terrified. They were scared for their lives at just this little revealing of God. And so in Exodus 20, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So in other words, the Israelites had this glimpse of God's presence and God's voice, and they were terrified. It unraveled them, and they wouldn't come near the mountain. It says they stood far off and spoke to Moses. They pleaded with Moses to speak to God and to have God speak through Moses because they were afraid 
that the presence and voice of God would kill them. And, and here we meet with an important development in the biblical narrative and the whole storyline of Scripture. God's people need a mediator to speak God's word to them and to represent them before God. Moses was a man who God had chosen to represent him to his people, to be God's prophet. And this arrangement was continued with other prophets in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God gives his word to the prophets, and the prophets will speak God's word, and they'll enforce God's covenants to the people. The prophets of the Old Testament served as God's mouthpieces and covenant enforcers. They warned Israel when they were breaking the covenant with God, and they declared to Israel the things that God was saying to them. And we see this in many, many instances in the Old Testament where it says, the word of the Lord came to fill in the blank. Or when a prophet says, thus says the Lord, before giving people God's message. Humanity needs a mediator. We need a representative between God and us to bring God's word and to stand before God on our behalf. So the question arises then, how long is this arrangement meant to continue? God chose Moses, I'm going to speak through this man, and continually through the narrative of the Old Testament, we see again and again God using a mediator to speak his words to others. Well, how long is that supposed to go on? And will there be a final prophet? Will there, will there be a last one? Well, the answer to both questions is, is yes. And humanity will always need a prophet, and there was a promised final prophet to come. And surprisingly, this promise for the final prophet comes in Deuteronomy 18. Moses tells the Israelites, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So in this passage, Moses tells the people that God has promised a prophet who will come from the Jewish nation, who will speak perfectly for God, and God will punish all who don't listen to him. He says, I will require it of the person who doesn't listen to this prophet coming. So who will this prophet be? Well, we as Christians living 2,000 years with the benefit of hindsight uh, know the Sunday school answer right away. And I've already told you many times that the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. So we, we obviously can discern who it is looking back. But we often... Well, we always, when we're reading scripture, we need to think about who the original readers were, what they saw, and what they were looking forward to. We need to slow down and consider this problem from the perspective of Old Testament Jews. For their entire history, they were wondering who this final prophet was and, and when he would come. There were many significant prophets in the history of Israel, from Samuel to Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others, but none of these prophets nor the many other prophets were the final prophet from God, and they weren't understood to be the final prophet from God. And by the time we get to the era of Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish nation was waiting for the Messiah, for the Christ, but they were also still waiting for the pro final prophet. And because we, we see from the, the Gospels that there were many 
messianic scriptures in the Old Testament that they weren't quite putting together yet. They weren't able to understand the full scope of who Christ was, who the Christ would be when he came. So in the beginning of John, the, the Gospel of John, John 1, we read of John the Baptist conversing with religious leaders down uh, at the Jordan River. They'd been sent to find out who he was um, and get an answer to bring back to headquarters. And the passage says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So what do we see in that passage? Well, the religious leaders were sent to determine the identity of John the Baptist. And they asked him outright, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet that was predicted by Moses? He says no, but that he was preparing the way for him. And what did we just say that a prophet was? What is an Old Testament prophet? A mediator between God and his people. The mouthpiece of God speaking God's word to his people. A covenant enforcer who would declare the conditions of the covenant and call people to live in line with the covenant. Well, that sounds pretty familiar to someone we all know, but just slightly different, somehow insufficient. The Old Testament prophets were somehow incomplete because they themselves were sinners guilty before God. And Jonah is an excellent example. But who interceded for the prophets? You know, they lived and they died, and a new prophet would need to be chosen and sent. And there were many false prophets who gained the ear of the people and would lead them away from God's truth. So what prophet would actually be recognized as the truth or the way? It has seemed an unsolvable problem, again, from the Old Testament perspective, but something amazing happened. Instead of God sending his word through another fallible prophet and mediator, the word became flesh and came himself. John 1, 1 through 18, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the wor world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18 has come. Only this prophet, instead of merely hearing the word from the Lord, is the word of made flesh. Is the full, final, and complete revelation from God, of God, who is God. And I quoted this passage from John 1 at length, all 18 verses, because it displays the fuller reality of who the final prophet is. And it reveals more of his attributes and more of his purpose. And really, it occurred to me as I was reading it that if you read John 1, 1 through 18 carefully, it's really just a fuller exposition of our passage in Hebrews today. Verse 1 of our passage says that long ago, God spoke to the people of Israel through the prophets. The word of God came through the prophets. Verse 1 of our passage says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, not through his son in the same way that he spoke through the prophets, but by his son, God's representative, God's voice, God's mediator is God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Now we can see that with just this first line from Hebrews chapter 1, it's immense in its scope and its claims. God has now spoken to us by his son. The final prophet has come. The promise in Deuteronomy 18 has been fulfilled. The verse 2 of our passage continues, He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We see the Lord Jesus the ultimate revelation of God has inherited all things. He's the heir of all things. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. King Jesus reigns supreme on the throne. And the book of Hebrews is just going to expand on that topic in the rest of chapter 1, which is going to be the next message in Hebrews, whenever that is. But we need to understand this, this heir of all things phrase and to do so, we need to pick up with Jesus' favorite self-designation, the thing that Jesus called himself more than anything else, Son of Man. We have to understand what Son of Man is in order to understand how Christ is the heir of all things. More than any other title, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, and he often spoke of the Son of Man in the third person. And this was to point to the allusion that he was making in the Old Testament. And some people think that um, when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, he was pointing out his humanity um, over his divinity, but in fact, it's, it's the complete opposite. The Old Testament reference Jesus was making was to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's vision, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what do we see here? The Son of Man comes with clouds of heaven to God Almighty, and God gives the Son of Man dominion, glory, and a kingdom that will never end, and all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. And the Son of Man is divine and gives him glory, and God gives him glory in a kingdom that's never going to end. 
the Son of Man comes to God and inherits all of this, and this is who Jesus was telling everybody that he was during his earthly ministry. He was saying, do you remember the divine Son of Man from Daniel's vision, the one who, give, who God gives glory and authority and a never-ending kingdom to? That's me. I have come. I'm the Son of Man. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. So this is a clear teaching on Daniel's son of man coming to earth at the end of history. That Jesus understood himself to be the one who will come and bring history to its grand conclusion. There is an end to this story. It's already been written in God's book. And Jesus Christ is the one who's going to come and bring it to completion. That's my son. <laughs> Yeah. It's funny, uh, I said before, like, you know the cry of your own cub, but the funniest thing to me becoming a dad was how when you hear your child cry, your mind is gone, like, it's whatever's going on right there. Anyway, I thought he was being a little quiet. Where was I? Jesus has uh, understood himself to be the one who will come and bring history to its grand conclusion. In fact, it was Jesus' profession of himself as a son of man which finally got him to condemned to death by the religious leaders. You remember, for a lot of the story in the Gospels, they were trying to figure out how we can catch Jesus in his words so that we can kill him. They couldn't find anything until they asked him outright if he was the Christ, and Jesus made this reference to him being the son of man. Uh, Jesus was arrested, and when he was on trial with the council of Jewish religious leaders, the scripture says, Matthew 26, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And that's what did it. Now, some people, through ignorance of the Bible, and I don't mean they're stupid, they just don't know what the Bible says. They might be stupid, I don't know. Um, they say that Jesus never claimed divinity for himself. That's a popular thing going around. But this passage from Matthew totally dismisses that silliness. You know, we in 21st century America might not have caught what Jesus just said, but his original audience knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to be. Jesus was claiming to be the divine son of man from Daniel. And unless it was true, Jesus had in fact committed blasphemy and deserved death. And so under the law, if it wasn't true what Jesus said, he deserved to be condemned to death. So in a sense, you know, they, they had a mistaken identity, but in a sense the priests were correct that he has uttered blasphemy and he deserves to die unless it was true. And it's astounding if it's true. Well, how do we know if it's true? 
because Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and he came to the right hand of the Father. We see in Daniel 7 a prophecy for the Son of Man coming on clouds of glory. Jesus says, that's me, in no unmistakable terms. Jesus rose from the dead, and then Stephen saw this. He witnessed this, and he testified to this as he was being stoned to death in Acts 7. He says, Acts says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now Luke, the author of Acts, wrote that Stephen saw Jesus. Stephen's own words were that he saw the Son of Man. So what's all this mean? Well, it means that in Hebrews 1, 2, when it says God appointed Jesus the heir of all things, that the Son of Man has finally come to the Ancient of Days. And the author of Hebrews doesn't stop there with that truth either. After saying Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God and Jesus is the heir of all things, he says that it was through Jesus that God created the world. And he ascribes to Jesus Christ the glory of having created the world. And this was already mentioned in the passage in John 1, which is why I wanted to read it at length. Because John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So it falls under the category of all things. It was made by Christ. John 1.10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And Paul writes this same truth in Colossians 1.15-17. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It says that last line, in him all things hold together, and that's very similar to the end of the last part of our passage today, 3a, which says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't uh, really know as much about um, quantum mechanics or cosmology to talk about it too much, but I I do hear tell every once in a while that physicists are looking for this grand unified theory of everything. What's the principle that holds the entire universe together? What's the, what's, what's the stuff that, that is the fundamental laws of the universe? And this just makes me think of that. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. If Jesus decided to stop upholding the universe, there'd be no more universe anymore. Everything is upheld and continuing on because Jesus Christ wills it to be so. It's like that song from Fernando Ortega. The world is turning in its place because you made it to. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe and he's the one who sustains it. And it's by his royal word with, that all things continue to exist and function. He's the sovereign Lord, not just of people who attend church on Sunday mornings, but of everyone and everything in all of creation, and the creation was made to glorify him. Again, Colossians 1.16 says, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And Ephesians 1.19-21, he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is supreme. In these first verses of Hebrews, the author 
through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is laying out the foundation for the whole rest of the book, which is really the dominant theme of all Scripture, as I will have said and will continue to say, the supremacy of God's Son. And as if what he has written wasn't enough already, he continues in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Greek phrase which is translated here as exact imprint is the same language which was used for minting coins. And when a coin was identical to the mold, when it exactly matched the mold, it was the exact imprint. It's the same language being used here in Hebrews. So the author of Hebrews is repeating Jesus' own words from uh, John 14, 9, which says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You remember one of the apostles is telling, talking to Jesus, he says, if only we could see the Father, then you know, things would be different. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Hebrews and these two passages from John are reinforcing Christ's deity and again, this was in the beginning of John chapter 1, which I read earlier, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That passage is so unmistakably clear that there are many uh, cults and heresies which have to actually change God's Word in order to change it from what it says. It's like, this can't be true. I got an idea, let's change God's Word. Hey, that's great, let's do that. You know, the divinity of Christ isn't a myth. And it wasn't invented by confused followers in the centuries following Jesus' earthly ministry. The author of Hebrews eliminates that foolishness in three short verses. Jesus Christ wasn't just some well-meaning human teacher who was misquoted and misunderstood by his disciples. Jesus Christ was and is very God of very God. Charles Spurgeon said, Whatever God is, Christ is, the very likeness of God the very Godhead of Godhead, the very deity of deity is in Christ Jesus. Again, Colossians 1, 18 to 19, he, again being Christ, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the very fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The point of all of these passages, and there's there a lot of skimming through Scripture this, with this writing, and the point of all of this trekking across the pages of Scripture is to illuminate, to shine a bright light on who and what the Bible says Jesus Christ is. And we say again, as we said in the beginning of this message, that there are truths in Scripture which confront us and demand a response. What's, what should your response be to what you've just heard? This truth about who Christ is. You know, Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And you've just heard a small part of what God the Holy Spirit has to say about Jesus Christ and the supremacy of God's Son. And this truth calls us for this response, but what should our response be? What are we to say to these things? What are we to do when we hear these things? When we see the testimony of the Holy Spirit conveying to us that Jesus Christ is the glorious King of all creation, what should our response be? Well, we should all recognize why, during his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ confronted people with who he was. God himself had taken on human flesh and was standing in front of them. And again, this was evident to the people who heard what he was saying. They tried to kill him several times because of this. 
Remember that passage in John where the, uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders are saying that they're children of Abraham, and he says, if you're children of Abraham, you'd rejoice in my coming. Um, and he says, uh, they say something along the lines of, you know, you're not even 50 years old, and you're telling us that you've seen Abraham. And what does Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. No, he wasn't making some random, that's, that's me. He said, I am. They, they understood what he was saying. They said that's when they tried to kill him for that because they knew what he was saying. Jesus was claiming to be the same guy from the Old Testament. Jesus was saying, I am Yahweh. That's why they couldn't just say, you know, he's an okay teacher. He's a nice guy, kind of a hippie, but, uh, you know, we, we, we can let him go. But no, this guy, he doesn't leave you those options. Jesus made bold claims. So what should our response be to these things? Well, Psalm 2.12 just told us that all who take refuge in him are blessed. And remember what we learned last week, if you were here. If not, too bad. <laughs> the original readers and hearers of the book of Hebrews were Jewish Christians who were tempted with going back to their old lives. Christianity's hard. It got very hard for them, and they were tempted to go back. They were tempted to go back to Egypt, as it was. They were tempted to run from Christ, to run from persecution, and go back to the way things were before. So what a tremendous encouragement it must have been to them to receive this letter and to see that the Christ that they gave up their old lives for is the supreme king of all creation. Again, think of the scales. You have this Christ who we just talked about in the first three verses of the Bible versus whatever the earth can give you, whatever worldly pleasures that you can experience. So what are you going to choose? We talked about last week, what's worth, what would outweigh that? What suffering is, is, uh, is too much for Christ, Jesus, the king of the universe? Jesus is the savior who redeemed them and us and is the glorious son of man. Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. He's the final, the ultimate revelation of God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the means and the end, the very purpose of creation. This, the scripture passages that we said all things were created for him. The reason anything exists is for Christ. He is the purpose why anything exists at all. So we, like the original readers of Hebrews, should take this to heart. And as you walk out of here, then you begin your Sunday afternoon routine, as you begin your week with its struggles, with its frustrations, with the difficulties, with the vanities, you know, the things you ask yourself, like, does this even matter? We can remember that our king isn't fiction, and our king isn't just some first century guru, but he is, in fact, the radiance of the glory of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And there is not a single place in all of the universe over which Jesus isn't king. And there's no part of your life that Jesus isn't sovereign over. We serve the living and sovereign King Jesus. And you can almost imagine the author of Hebrews thinking of Psalm 85:8 as he wrote this book, which reads, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. We listen to what the Lord, the word of the Lord says to you. God speaks peace to his saints. Don't turn back to folly. But remember, remember who the Lord Jesus Christ is. 
and what it is that we serve and who it is that we will one day see when we pass through the veil and enter into glory. Do you need a mediator? Jesus Christ is our mediator. Do you need a word from God? Jesus is the word and is God and speaks to us through the scriptures. Do you need to know that God's in control? Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you need to know if the universe has a purpose? All things were created through and for Jesus. Is Jesus worth letting go of all of our earthly baggage and sin and following? Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. From the start of the letter to the Hebrews, the Holy Spirit addresses weary and weak and wavering Christians. And instead of giving us a rebuke for being weak and wavering and having little faith, he gives Christians a vision of the glory of the Son of God. And he says, Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is why we have this great gift in the scriptures, in the Bible, and why there's this wonderful hymn that says, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? To the glory of God, amen. Let's pray. Our Father, our vision is dim. Our faith is weak. Our eyes are dry and our hearts are cold, Lord. But I pray, Lord God, that you would fan the flame of love and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. That you'd let us have the perspective of this life that we ought to have as those who are called by your name, as those who go out into a community that doesn't know you. Let us be lights. Let us be so full of Christ, so full of Jesus, so in love with Jesus that it spills over into everything we do and everything we say. Let us glorify God in this. Let us glorify God and enjoy him forever. For it is in the name of our sovereign King Jesus that we pray. Amen.